You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and first let me start by apologising for the shocking state of my voice. Uh, I've been at Glastonbury Festival over the weekend, so not only have I been staying up late and drinking too much booze, uh, I've also been uh, uh, welcoming acts to the stage such as Kevin Eldon and uh, Josh Widdicombe and Josie Long. And really, when you're dealing with that kind of talent, you can't do anything apart from scream into a mic on a massive PA. So I've rather knackered my voice. Many apologies. Um, the interview you're about to hear uh, contains me in f- much more fine fettle than this. Um, also, before we begin, check this out. This episode of the Comedians Comedian podcast is supported by Squarespace, which is an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and then enter the offer code COMEDY at the checkout. A better web starts with your website. And I feel now I should get a, a xylophone and go bing bong, bingly bing. <laughs> I've never done an advert before. How was that? Was that all right? I hope I'm so rock and roll it sounded a bit clanging to you to hear me advertise something. But the truth is I'm probably more like, uh, you're, you're probably reacting more like, no, Stu, your flat Warwickshire accent and bland vocal tones are perfectly suited to a career in selling people things. Oh, well, let me make it up to you with a very terrific interview indeed. This is the brilliant Armour Rahman. Recorded in premises, donated very kindly by the Soho Theatre in London. Thank you, guys. Here's Armour Rahman. Let's start with the show here. How's it going? I see you're sold out tonight. Yeah, it's been great. Like, it's lovely seeing your name on a board like Stuart Lee, Rich Hall, Armour Rahman, sold out. Yeah, underneath Where is that board? I need a photo of yes, that. Yes, Okay, yeah, I need, to, I, need to, I need to take a photo of that. How's the run been going? It's been fantastic. It's been so, so good. It's just... Um, yeah, it's just people just get it, you know, like I, I, I just have hardly changed anything from the Australian content. Uh, even the Australian references about Australian politics, people, people yes. understand and it's just, it's been a dream. It's been great. And how long are you, where, where are you going next? Um, I'm going, uh, I'm doing one little show in Birmingham and then and back to Australia and then hopefully to the US after that. Okay. Are yeah. you managed to sort your visa issues? Well, you know, this work, is, work yeah. in progress, work in progress. I've had a look yeah. at a load of uh, reviews and interviews of yours online and uh, yeah, the visa issue is often comes up, presumably is that, I'm guessing, is that to do with some of the activism that you mentioned in the Yeah, some, some, some decisions I made when I was younger that, you know. Okay. I have to live with the consequences of now. Okay, fair it. Well, let's start. Well, yeah, I normally sort of start by putting someone in in context and just 
like the reason you came to my attention, as I'm sure a lot of people's attention, was the reverse racism video that yes. had a bajillion hits on YouTube and it's kind of become you nailed, you skewered that thing, you went, it's like this, and the world went, holy shit, it is. <laughs> when did that um when did you start to notice that going off? Were you aware of it as that was becoming more popular? Did no, that happen behind well, your back? Or well, it did, well, it didn't happen straight away. Um, I put it up. I don't know if you know, I actually put it up because I was going to quit stand-up. I've heard this story. Yeah. I was meaning to ask. This is such yeah. a wonderful PR story. I was reading so, it going, is this true? Is this it, been massaged? It's absolutely okay. true. And, and when I explain it, you'll understand sure. as a comic that it is totally true. Um, you know, I'm doing sort of very niche... Uh, aggressively political comedy uh, I just split from my longtime comedy partner Nazim Hussain who we'd done Fear of a Brown Planet with which was totally cool we were just you know going solo because we our audiences were kind of developing different directions but I just felt like Australia was so small my audience was so niche that it just wasn't really sustainable uh, so I decided you know just to film the last of my sort of material put a clip up every month every two months until kind of, it's all gone yeah and, and then just kind of yeah just move on yeah. you know with my dignity intact basically okay um, without being too bitter uh, and uh, what, so, what were you planning to move on to Did you I, had, no, I had plan? no plans okay. I, had, I had absolutely no plan B I had nothing else but it's okay. just I just felt like I could not as long as I was in comedy I wouldn't be able to do something else uh, and while I was in comedy comedy wasn't really paying the bills so yeah, the reverse racism clip was the, f the first one that I put up. And, you know, that's a bit that I would tour with if I had any tours. Mm -hmm. That's not something I would ever burn. Um, but, yeah, it just... And I didn't expect it to do any better or worse than my other clips. I've put up heaps of clips before. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the first couple of days, you know, it, it, it was, you know, pretty successful or whatever. And then it just snowballed into something, into something else. Uh, and, yeah, it was... Totally, totally took me out of surprise and, and introduced me to a lot of people for the first time. Absolutely. It's obviously made a huge difference in your career. And in fact, that's, there was presumably then a moment where you went, oh, maybe I, maybe I won't jack this in. Actually, yeah, suddenly yeah, like, millions of people. Well, you know, particularly the US, which to me was a place that I wanted to go and just kind of was not on anyone's radar. The US really opened up to me. Like when I look at that clip, you know, 60% of the views are from the United States. Okay. So, yeah, it was just, it was something like a lot of things in this industry, it was a total accident. And do you, what, what's your analysis of why that is, why that specific clip was so successful? Um, well, it's hard because I didn't have this analysis when I was putting it up. Sure. But from the feedback and from what people yeah, I mean, said you, You've seen a bunch of, you've seen all your videos that you've yeah. put up. You know that this one's gone off. Yeah. Um, I think... You know, and I keep saying this in, in interviews because some people are like, you know, you really, um, you really opened up people's minds with that and you came at it from a different angle. But for me, I feel like, you know, the trick to comedy is really telling people something that they already know, right? You confirming something, a situation or idea that people know, and then, but you package it in a certain way where people go, yes. It is like that, right? Whether it's, you know, how annoying it is to line up for the train or whether it is reverse racism, it's an idea that people already, or an experience that people already have in their mind. Yeah. And when they see it reflected, that's when they really connect and, and, uh, and find it funny. Absolutely. Uh, so I really think that that reverse racism thing, because it starts, because the bit starts with my personal experience of being accused of reverse racism mm -hmm. for making jokes about white people. Mm -hmm. 
I think just a lot of people have had that same experience. Being when you you talk about racism and then you people turn around and call you the reverse racist. That's a real conversation and a real experience that so many people have had. Yes, it's an exhausting argument that so many people have had. Um, that people know intuitively is wrong, but you know, in that bit, I kind of laid out why it's a ridiculous concept. Yes. So the feedback that I got was like, "Thank you. I've been arguing with one person for the last five years, either at school or at work or a friend of yeah. mine, and now I just send them this video. Not that not that they get it afterwards. Yeah, but sure. at least it saves me from writing the essay." Absolutely. On Facebook Absolutely. or Twitter. Okay. Well, this, this, this opens up all sorts of questions. One of which is, I mean, from my from the first time I saw the, the video before I'd heard of you in another car, I'd heard of Fear of a Brown Planet, but I'd never seen any of your work. Um, I noticed as well, you're wearing a tux. Yes. Which I've not seen in any of your other clips. <laughs> no, no, and there's no. something about the setting of that. You look preppy yeah. and you look, I kind of guessed you were American. I didn't recognize your accent. Yeah. And there was something about the framing of it that's different to your other videos. Well, it was a total accident. So, after even after we uh, decided to go solo as Fear of a Grand Planet, we'd had other shows that had lined up well in advance. So we were basically doing our last shows together as Fear of a Grand Planet. It was our hometown in Melbourne, and we we're at the Athenaeum Theatre, which is this nice, beautiful, big theatre. And uh, every time we play there, or like we play the Opera House, this is kind of a thing. We wear we wear suits. Like we don't normally wear suits on stage. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I put on a bow tie. And so it was kind of for a, for a joke almost. Like, yeah, was, like, you know, we're in a classy venue, so gotcha. let's you know, from you know, once in seven years, let's let's wear something kind of classy. Because it, it, what it reminded me of, because it's got that kind of shiny stuff in the background, it reminded me of the Under the Sea dance in Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I, mean? yeah, I was yeah. like, oh wow, well, like I a wonder if I'm kind of, exactly. It looked like, oh, here's this 19-year-old guy <laughs> gifted with the wisdom yeah. of something like that. Yeah, it, it yeah, it, it's a weird combination. I don't know, like we weren't even going to film that show. My friend came and filmed Jesus. that show at the last minute. I wasn't okay. going to do that bit because that bit's actually from my solo show. It wasn't from the Fear of Brown Planet show, um, but because I had that plan to like burn my material, I finished the show with that bit. We had it on camera. My friend had a, a excellent sort of camera that, you know, it's it's the quality of that clip is far superior <laughs> to to my other clips that I've put online. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of perfect storm of yeah. a few different things that produced a nice a nice little little clip. Something I often talk about on this show. I hope not not quite yet to a tedious extent is I like to see comics as superheroes and work out their origin story and this the amount of coincidences in this is a perfect superhero origin story I was about to give up I wasn't even going to do that material there was a camera I'd never used before and but I think what what you can't lose sight of is the fact is it's the material that speaks for itself and what you do with that material as it's interesting hearing you say that you you're telling people something they already know. Because I noticed in the way you meet out the material is you're someone who's great at letting us catch up with you. That's part of the joy of watching your stuff. Would you, would you agree with that? Do you, do you know what I mean? That, that you, you establish a situation and people go, uh -huh, and then we, we always catch up at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you, well, I have to do that with political content a lot because even if people know where you're coming from, if you're talking about an idea that's got a few steps to it in terms of building the bit or building the idea, you just have to. You have to pace it out so that people can get to the ending with you instead of just 
coming out and blurting out a whole bunch of stuff and then yes. you know some people get it some people don't and is this that's that's something that you have you've become aware of over time like what was your first take us back to your first stand-up experience yeah and the sort of material you were doing and the sort of reactions you were getting I mean it was the same kind of thing and I, 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 I don't know why but I like I always kind of had that methodical kind of approach to it okay um, just because I, I think that's just the way I write that like we have to get from point A to point B and I have to, in some ways, spell it out as economically as possible with as few words as possible so that we can get there quickly. Is it when you say you have to, is that born of experience or is that just like that's always been your, your was that your first idea of it? I'm yeah. going to have to do work because your word economy is fantastic. That's just a natural thing. Yeah, to, yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay. I mean, because of the time constraints. Sure. Right. Because of the time constraints of comedy, you know, you can't talk for that long without hitting some kind of punchline. Uh, whether it's a serious one or a, or, or a funny one. Sure. So I think that's always just, that's kind of the pressure cooker that, that makes me, you know, be succinct and methodical to, to get these ideas out. So your, so the, your first kind of gigs, what was, the, what was the first stuff that you expressed on stage? So, I mean, this is another sort of origin story. Um, we, Nazim and I got into comedy, you know, purely by accident. Nazim, um, well, we live in Melbourne. Melbourne has one of the biggest comedy festivals in the world, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and they have a, uh, an open mic competition every year called Raw. Yes. Yeah, which is, okay. you know, five minutes of stand-up um, in heats, um, very much like a, you know, a talent show format, you know, mm-hmm. 10 contestants, two people go through every round. Nazim entered as, uh, just because, um, we all went to support him and laugh or whatever. Nazim got through very easily because in the opening rounds, eight out of 10 people should not be getting on stage. Um, because, you know, just anyone and everyone gets up there. Sure. Nazim got through his round very easily. And because all our friends were there and it was just so much fun, I thought, all right, I'll do it. How prepared was Nazim? Was he, had he got a set and worked on it? <laughs> we'll use the term set loosely, but <laughs> okay. I mean, it was, it was five minutes. Okay. But it was good. Like, it was a tight five minutes. Um, and then... I did my five minutes the next the next week or maybe two which weeks. Which was which you prepared for how long? Uh I would have put a good hour and a half into that okay. five minutes, I think. All up. Um and our friends came and we had a great time and we got I got through and then we kept getting through these rounds, making it to the state finals, to so the national finals. Uh, I made it to like the televised national final and it was all very exciting. And by the end of the year we, we had this show, Fear of a Brown Planet. And uh, it just went. By the end of the same year that you did Raw on a whim. Yes. You had an hour show. We had an hour show that was selling out. You know, we sold out our first uh, season like in days because our friends and our community just backed it, you know, supported us so much. So we really had an alternative sort of dream run to the beginning of our careers, which, you know, on some level I can understand a lot of comics didn't appreciate. Really? Okay. Well, because it was kind of like, well, you haven't paid your dues. And, sure. and there was also like, well, who are these people who are coming to your shows? And yeah. I was like, well, these are the people you haven't catered to for years. That's who's yeah, going to watch it. Yeah, these are the people who are desperate to hear something about their lives reflected in art anywhere. Absolutely. This is when I, I saw your show last week and at the beginning of the week, and I was struck by you were sort of getting the reaction from people in the room who I don't normally see at the gigs I do. You were getting reactions from, I would assume, Muslim women in headscarves. You were getting, you know, that, that was like they, 
I felt like I was in a minority as a Caucasian in your audience. And I remember um, Nabil Abdul Rashid was there, yeah. the same gig. We, I've not seen his act, but I know he's a comic. I've yeah. met him a few times, nice guy. And he said afterwards, so how did you react to the uh, randomly killing white men bit? <laughs> and uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. But uh, it was what struck me as I was walking away after the gig was, oh my God, I just came out of a room, out of, out of a gig, and someone asked me how I reacted to a thing. That doesn't happen to me. Because I'm not challenged. Do you know what I mean? It kind of made yeah. me go, holy shit. That, that, let's, I was sort of all over the place here. There's loads to talk about. But um, that bit about randomly killing white men. Yes. And feel free to describe it now. I don't remember yeah. exactly how it goes. Yeah. I don't want to... Do you know what I mean? It's, that is obviously a very salacious way to describe it. And also part of what you're saying. And also an accurate way to describe yeah, yeah, no, what absolutely. the bit is about. Absolutely. Yeah. But just uh, for the sake of context, just to... Explain that bit to me, and I'll talk about what I perceived and how. So I it was it was a very silly bit based on a on a true story where I was getting trolled on Twitter, and someone tweeted publicly that Amir Rahman supports the killing of whites. So like some kind of like sure. mass murder kind of scenario where yeah. white people get randomly murdered, and um, yeah, and the joke is basically like you know I was upset because I've never said anything like that out loud. So and then the joke yeah. is about how you know I've thought about it many many times. And then there was Some a, people just tuned out of the podcast. There was not at all, not at all. There was a moment in the, the joke where you said, I don't mean white people, obviously I just mean white men. And all of the women in the audience went, woo! And that was a very, it wasn't a problematic moment, but it was a very different moment for me. Like, oh, wow, I'm sitting in an audience and, and I am not often as a privileged <laughs> white male. I am the target. I, yeah, well, not only am I the target, not only am I the butt of the joke, white men are very often the butt of the joke, um, but I'm the butt of an explicit call to arms to wipe me out. And not just that, but that comedy premise made all the girls go, woo! And I kind of went, oh, fuck, this is like a rally. You know what I mean? It's about to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a very exciting sort of a moment because I came away, like I said, I, I came away having experienced something different. Now, you have in some of the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in some of the, the reviews that I've read or some of the interviews I've done with you, you, I think, have said that you don't see yourself as an agent for social change. The racism that you talk about. Like, I, I think that yeah. it's fair to say the vast majority of your material is observational comedy about race. racism yeah. and race and the experience of suffering racism, often by people who don't even know they're doing it. Correct. And I wanted to ask, is that right? Do you, do you, I, th I think what you said in the past, and tell me if I'm misquoting you, is that racism is too big an issue to solve through comedy. Yes. So you're in it for the laughs predominantly. Yeah, for the laughs, I mean, for the relief. You know what I mean? For, for the people who come to my show, experience this stuff on a daily basis, it's a minor moment of relief for them. And I really, you know, not just myself, but I really kind of, I get annoyed when comedians kind of think that they're doing maybe a little bit more than they actually are, right? <laughs> okay, Cause, okay. Because it's, it's entertainment, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm... I, I don't really want to push it as anything more than that. Um, and yeah, look, it connects to people on a very personal level and it, and people um, really relate to it. And yeah, it's different and it's not the usual thing, but really like it's another genre of entertainment. And when people leave the show, the things that happen to them on a daily basis are going to keep happening. So, you know, to kind of say that my comedy is breaking down the institution of race, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a big call. Do you think that hip-hop went some way towards breaking down the institution of racism? 
It's hard to say because hip hop now to me is, is completely sort of co-opted by the mainstream. Do you know what I mean? I, I saw your I saw on your blog the uh, the resp- the Macklemore response. Yes, tweet that was yes. priceless. Well, in fact, in fact, Iggy Azalea is the is the protagonist in that mm, mm, <laughs> killing white people joke. Yes. Um, who, who I'm sorry to say I had never heard of. I'm 36 years old. I'd never heard of Iggy Azalea. I'm sorry. Did you go I went and look her up after? Now I know about her because of you. I apologize. <laughs> now I do say in the show, if you don't know who she is, do not look it up. Yeah, do actually. I, I don't want to be responsible I, for that. I ignored that warning, and I have only myself. Um, I, look, I think there were stages where hip hop definitely articulated uh, a certain experience that the mainstream was completely oblivious to. Um, but whether or not that actually changed things I'm not I think again you know hip-hop gave people a sense of confidence me growing up gave me a sense of confidence that made me realize like I'm not crazy that racism is not a figment of my imagination mm-hmm. um, so I think the biggest thing hip-hop did was give people strength uh, whether it actually broke institutions I don't know because it, it, it got co-opted like a lot of other things and do you See, it, it just uh, the reason I ask is I was surprised to see to read you saying that you didn't think comedy would work as a as a medium for social change or as an agent for social change because I sort of assumed that you would want to follow your and I know you're into hip hop I assumed that you would want to follow the artists that you want to follow you know the provocative yeah. challenging sort of yeah. stuff and I feel like I haven't really ever read an interview with a hip hop artist where they've said. I don't think we can really change stuff. Do you see what I mean? I think there's a parallel between yeah. your comedy and some of the well, hip-hop guys. Well, well I, I, I say a lot of times that I think my comedy is more influenced by the hip-hop I listen to than the comedians I listen to. Sure. So when I listen to political hip-hop, that's when I realise that there's ways to speak to people through entertainment that is still powerful and that can still connect with people. Um, but I, I, I think also those, like if you take a public enemy or care as well, I mean, what they achieved was on a mass, mass scale. So I guess there's a parallel maybe in terms of our kind of uh, intentions or our direction, but I mean, what they achieved was just actually historically phenomenal. What, the, what they managed to articulate um, and the people they managed to reach was just, you know, it was, it was a phenomenon. And, and given though that you're now reaching millions of people, in a, two, in, a, in a two and a half minute clip. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not filling out stadiums. People all over the world are sending that clip to each other and going, this, it's this, this is what I was trying to articulate. So yeah. you are on a similar sort of, there are parallels, aren't there? It's very flattering. <laughs> but, I'm not uh, saying you're yeah. the new public enemy, yeah. but, but do you see what I mean? In terms yeah. of anger, because what you do is you articulate anger, your yeah. own anger and the anger of the audience in a very funny way, in a very... Uh, I'm trying not to use the word articulate twice in a sentence, but it is, it's articulate. You say it, you express it. And that's what a lot of hip-hop artists were doing. And I just wonder if, um, if it's sort of, it felt like it was too easy to hear you say, oh, it's not, it's not going to change anything. I kind of, when I see you on the poster with a hand grenade for a microphone, which yeah, is yeah, not well, an easy look to pull off. Well, and it's also, it. it's also uh, not great if you're trying to apply for a visa to the US. Which is one of those things. Seems oh, like a great out, idea at the time. Turns out the US visa people have access to Google. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? You're, the, the way you frame yourself is bang, this is explosive, this is, this is, do, 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 yeah. do you see where I'm, yeah. Where yeah, I'm getting absolutely. at? There seems to be a disconnect. Oh, and, and it's totally, and it is totally modeled on my influences. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's totally a product of, of those things. Um, 
I guess I would. Uh, I'd like. I'd like for it to eventually be something like that. Like if you know, I wouldn't be unhappy if I was reaching that many people the way that kind of music did. Um, but uh, maybe it's just like the frustration that comedians have that they're not actually musicians. I don't know. It, that is a very common. I think all Dave Chappelle had this line in in, in Block Party where he says, it just he's trying on some clothes in a store or something, but he he just makes this off the cuff comment where he says all musicians want to be comedians and all comedians want to be musicians and that's so true that's so true so many musicians i've met i that i've met are naturally funny it makes me so jealous i just think please don't go into comedy please <laughs> yeah I and made, that cannot work the other way yeah, well, musicians cannot be looking at comedians and going oh he's so natural i know <laughs> yeah no, no see, and yeah i think i think i think as a comedian i'll always have an inferior inferiority complex compared to yeah compared to rock stars or rap stars I really enjoyed this interview. Armour has an absolutely piercing gaze that doesn't let up for one second. He's so switched on. And uh, what a refreshing change as well to talk to a comic utterly unbowed by self-doubt or rumination. Perhaps you'll say it's easier to feel that way if you've had the sort of success he's had. But I don't think it comes from that. I think it's something else in Armour's case. I think he's what I like to think of as being free from desire or more accurately free from need. You know, it's it's almost a zen-like quality to, to not need success from your comedy but instead to do it for your own sake for you know he's engaging with the comedy world for his own sake and that might very well be one of the principles on the big comcom list of how to be a happy comedian i'm sure many of you will already have seen his reverse racism clip online do take a look if you haven't so you know what we're talking about and also just keep an eye out for when he's back in the uk next or wherever you happen to be uh, he also obviously has a blog that we mentioned here so have a google of that it's very funny indeed Thank you to everyone who donated to the show via the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com. I think at the moment in an episode where I'm trying out a short advert, I'm not going to ram the donation thing down your throat too. So that's all I'll say about that for now. You know it's the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com and donate as much as you like. Thank you if you have. That's that. And thank you for coping with the adverts. It's kind of a trial run at the moment. Let me know how you feel about them. I'll try to do them with a bit of integrity and only about things that I think are good. Uh, So here is the second mention of two. This is the final blurb for now. If you're a comedian or a freelance artist of any sort, you probably do need your own website and maybe even an online shop if you've got stuff to sell. You need to be able to make it happen quickly and efficiently rather than, e.g., waiting a year for a close relative to get their shit together. That's why this episode of ComCom is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that does exactly that. They have all sorts of stuff I personally don't understand, drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs. I mean, if you look at the website, it wiggles back and forth in a really attractive way. Maybe that's what that means. Uh, They also have 24-7 customer support based in New York and Dublin, and you can create a beautifully designed website for as little as £5 a month, including a free domain name when you sign up for a year. When you sign up, please use the offer code COMEDY. You'll get 10% off and you'll show your support for the Comedians Comedian podcast. No credit card card required. Start building your website today. Bingly bingly bong, xylophone noise. That wasn't so bad. Was that so bad? That's all the panhandling done for this episode. Let's get back to the brilliant Armour Rachman. Do you feel that you need to maintain a particular sort of product? Something I've noticed in a lot of the reviews of this show are, well, two or three of them mentioned it, I thought it myself, when you did the jokes about Alanis Morissette's ironic, part of me was like, oh, what? Well, you're you're Mr. Angry. Kick more doors down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
What was you know? Do you, did you? What were the what were the decisions you made when structuring the show and including that material? Well, I think you know, for doing Fear of a Brown Planet for so many years, we had half an hour on stage, and it was my job to deliver like the hard, angry sort of material. When you have an hour, you can stretch out, and you know, even for me, like. I think that's kind of funny. I mean, I noticed. I mean, I noticed. I, I noticed like the reviews were not like particularly kind to the material that the crowd like are crowd favorites. Yes. Um, I mean, even some like I was surprised like some of the kind of ethnic stuff that I did. Someone wrote it was like sort of borderline offensive, and I was like, really? It was you know it was a couple of minutes of of stuff that again like the crowds like my crowd yes uh, likes. Um, but yeah, it wasn't. It's it wasn't sort of um, a decision where you know oh, it's been a bit heavy. Let's let's throw in some crossover material. And I mean, there's just genuinely some stuff that I didn't have space for before because you know I had to okay. deliver that half an hour of concentrated sure. sort of punch in the face comedy. So yeah, like I've I've always got that material about you know just the nerdy stuff and the superhero stuff mm-hmm. and the the whatever that I think you know I'm comfortable putting in because I don't think it compromises you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Your, um, your final story, and I will get onto the activism stuff as well in a minute, because obviously your final story is about the, the social activism of your youth. Are you, are you still active as a, as a do, you mean, do you still try and affect yeah. change in, in life outside of comedy? Yeah, so I still, you know, I'm still connected to organizations like grassroots organizations that are doing stuff. And, and I think that's also why I hesitate very much to say that my comedy changes things because I work yeah. with people and I know people who really spend day in, day out working like tirelessly and thanklessly on social work and youth work and community development and activism, which, you know, compared to what I do is much, much harder. Um, even though, you know, I hate the idea that, you know, people think being an artist is easy, but, but really in comparison, I find what they do so much more difficult. Um, that's that's another reason, I guess. It kind of puts my work in perspective for me. So in the in the final story, brilliant story about you the touching the wall and being yeah. on the documentary, yeah. going and just explain for us the, the set the, set the scene for that that final. Story. It, it, it's about a protest uh, that happened when I was nineteen at a at a detention camp uh, in Australia in the middle of the desert. Where a detention asylum seeking. Uh, yeah, where asylum seekers are held, and uh, yeah, my, what happened when I went out there as a wide eyed kind of. Just naive kid, really. So tell me, that story doesn't end with a big punchline. Yeah, it can't really. <laughs> it's a sad story. It's a sad story. Talk to me about that. It can't. Uh, well, it's 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 just quite a horrible story. I mean, there's funny points in it, you know, in terms of what happened to me and how it ended. But ultimately, the setting is is a is a detention camp in the middle of the desert, you know, and it's just it's it's kind of to me a symbol of what Australia is. And it's kind of what sort of kind of pushed me in the direction that I went, you know, at a young age. Um, and there's kind of no way to end it on a laugh. Have you had you ever tried? No, no, because it's such a serious story to me, and it's such a uh, and it's such a serious story to so many people that I knew that I just didn't want to trivialize it by putting it on. I mean, if you hear the story, like no one wants to laugh at the end anyways. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I thought that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a one man show and we laugh for a lot of the time. And, and did you, did you, did you have any kind of comics? Did you have to fight a comics instinct to go out on a laugh or did you, I mean, like you, you've placed it at the end. You could have put yeah. that story in the middle yeah. and then gone back into the funnies. Yeah. But you obviously haven't decided to do that. Yeah. 
No, I, I knew from the beginning there was no laugh at the end. And so the only place to put it was the end. Yes. Because I didn't want to, again, I didn't want to put it in the middle and then build up into, one, have to build back up into funny material. And two, I, I think it's the most important piece of the show. Yeah. So why not? It was really, I, I think the word brave is bandied around and I don't, mind, I don't mean it in a patronizing kind of way, but as a comic, it's very brave to finish a show on something that ends effectively with you saying, and this is a big problem, yeah. and it continues to be a problem. Um, I, I think that's, that's me being able to trust my audience. You know? I know the people who support my stuff are willing to, are willing to not laugh. You know, there's other points in the show where I do say things that are not funny, and I've always done that, and my audience kind of always gives me that space. Uh, and I just, yeah, I was never scared about ending it that way because I knew my audience would always care about the material enough to, to appreciate it. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your... Well, I'll tell you, let's just spend two minutes on Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's spend two hours on Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, man, it annoyed me so much. You're so right. I was reading your thoughts on Game of Thrones and the inherent racism of, for example, the Dothraki being yeah. just the deck basically Klingons and yeah. they have all the problems of... You know the other endemic well, fantasy. You're not just in Game of Thrones, but endemic yes. in a lot of science fiction and fantasy. And uh, and all the things with Daenerys being the white woman that goes and teaches them, the savior, and, and saves yeah. all the slaves, all yeah. the rest of it. And I was reading it, going, "No, don't commit." It's like it's my. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Idil Sukan is a photographer, and she convinced me, uh, she argued very effectively for the Lego movie being endemically, horrendously sexist. And I couldn't disagree with her. I really wanted to. I really wanted to disagree with you about Game of Thrones, but I'm like, oh, thanks, Arba. Now you've ruined Game of Thrones. <laughs> this is what a lot of people don't understand. I still watch Game of Thrones. Well, I did notice you were very informed about so, it. So, uh, you know, this is the thing. Like, a lot of the culture we consume is problematic. And I think a lot of people were just like, well, I watched Game of Thrones, are you calling me a racist? And I'm like, no, just, let's just agree that we're all participating in this thing that is quite racist. Like, that we just check like a lot West, of culture. Check your Westeros privilege. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what we're doing. You know, we, we're all consuming stuff that's endemically sexist. You know, it's just, let's just call it what it is and it's okay. You can keep watching it because I'm going to because I'm hooked. Okay. That's it, Joe. Okay, that's good. That's nice. I'm like, okay, Arma says I can watch Game yeah, of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I can't call for a boycott because I'm, I'm stuck as well. I need to find out what happened. <laughs> Do you have a bit that you're most proud of? Do you have a bit that you go, that's it, nailed it? 
Well, I'd have to say reverse racism because sure. it's, it's opened that many doors for me. But uh, but in terms of you, the, the sensual act of you being on yeah. stage saying the stuff. Yeah. Is there a bit? Is is it that bit? Is there a bit that you go, I oh, bloody nailed this. Ah. Uh, do I have a favorite? Or even, or even a bit that's that's most pleasurable for you to. Yeah. What's the most pleasurable bit? Well, I'm speaking of pleasurable. I've never performed that reverse racism joke ever again since it went of online. Yeah. Never ever again. Um, but uh, yeah, I think sometimes just the silliest, the dumbest, just the dumbest, dumbest punchlines sometimes are my are my favorite. Um, there's, there's one that I used in my in my first set where um, where I used to come out on stage and say. Um, I have, a, I have a question for for white people. Um, what the hell is your problem? And that yeah, was my yeah, yeah. that was my my favorite thing to say. Um, yeah, it's that kind of just like really immature, just um, just silly kind of stuff. I think that's that's the most fun for me. <laughs> This is a quote from the Herald Sun, <laughs> which I yes. which I thought was an interesting quote, and then I read the rest of the article. And yeah, I'm like, guys, um, is this the one that has my rebuttal posted at the end? Oh, I don't know. I, I okay. didn't read the comment. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll check. Um, in the Herald Sun, it says one of your reviews says he doesn't appear to care if his audience doesn't particularly find him funny. The message is stronger to him than his desire to make us laugh. Is that the case? Well, some background. <laughs> The Herald Sun, for people who don't know, sure. is our version of the Daily Mail. I, I became aware of that whilst reading the article. The person who they sent to review me was a sports journalist, okay. who then also accused me of manufacturing facts about Aboriginal history the smallpox. in my show, right? Okay. I had a bit where I talked about how white settlers used smallpox as a biological weapon against Aboriginal people, uh, and she basically said that I had made that up. Okay. based on I don't know what uh, so at the end of my review actually has my rebuttal posted with the award-winning documentary series that those facts are from sure uh, so yeah whatever to the hell it's <laughs> <laughs> okay um, but th- that's sp- but specifically that point I think re- you know the, that's still an issue we can talk about yeah absolutely which is absolutely. most important to you the desire to get the message across or the desire to make us laugh? Both. Both. I mean, how, like, there is no point in me talking if people are not laughing. Right? Like, I just, like, and for all comedians, like, you're a comedian, you have to make people laugh. Right? And people come up to me all the time and they're like, well, you don't talk about this and you don't talk about this and you haven't addressed this. And I'm just like, well, I'm not delivering a lecture. I'm not an academic. I'm an entertainer. And I'm talking about things that I find funny. Maybe I don't find that thing funny. Or maybe I couldn't think of a funny joke about it. Like, I'm limited by what I can come up with to entertain people. Um, so, so, yeah, the message is important to me, but making people laugh is equally important to me. And making people laugh has to come first. I mean, otherwise, how are you a comedian? Did you dream about being a comic when you were a kid? Is this something that was always a plan of yours? Never. Because never. you don't seem like a normal comic I'm not a, I'm not a normal human, bro. <laughs> but yeah, like I Do said... Do you see what I mean? You don't, seem, you don't seem desperate for approval or love, or you don't feel like... Um, it doesn't feel talking to you like you are anything other than a calm, 
sane, happy, angry <laughs> person who enjoys doing their stuff. Well, I mean, it was a total accident. Like, I never... I grew up listening to comedy, and I loved comedy. Like, I loved Bill Hicks and Chappelle and Chris Rock and all that kind of stuff. But it just never, ever occurred to me to actually do it. Not even in a, you know, wouldn't it be cool kind of way, the way I would dream of being, like, a rapper or a rock the star Hulk. or, like, yeah, yeah, or, or <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man. You know what I mean? Like, it just never entered my my mind. Um, and even after I met, uh, there, there's a group called Allah Made Me Funny, uh, Azhar Osman, Preacher Moss, uh, and Mo Amir from the US, three Muslim comedians who really pioneered, you know, Muslim comedy in the States. And uh, Nazim and I met them in, I think, 2006, and we were just in awe. We hung out with them. We were basically their roadies. Okay. Even then, it didn't occur to me to do stand-up. You know, I just loved being around the, the show and, you know, because I love, I, you know, I just, I love concerts, right? I love hip-hop shows, I love comedy shows. It was just... For me, it was enough to just be around and be sure. behind the scenes a little bit. So yeah, it was never a thing for me where, you know, I grew up thinking, yeah, one day I'm going to have a microphone and I'm going to be on stage. It happened by accident. It became a really good vehicle for me to talk about things that I cared about. Um, and yeah, I guess being in the niche that I was, uh, I just learned very quickly that opportunities were always going to be a little bit limited for me or very limited for me. I learned that very quickly. So I never had these huge expectations of, you know, becoming something huge in the mainstream or getting a TV show or anything like that. So I've always been, I've always had to be like a real realist in terms of, you know, the shelf life of this comedy and where it can or can't go. That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard another act say that. Well, I've I mean, it's just reality. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, you know, I'd just be an idiot to think otherwise, you know, and, and, and things kept happening to remind me that that's, that was the case, you know, if... What sorts of things? What do you well, mean? I mean, you know, well, one, either the lack of opportunities or opportunities that come your way that you have to say no to. Yeah. Right? So, hey, here's a script for a pilot, and then you read it, and it's like, well, but I don't want to be, like brown guy number two making these lame jokes you know and you know having to say no again and again to things which eventually means people stop calling you mm-hmm. um and you know which is fine because you know obviously it's not stuff that i want to do but again you kind of have to come to terms with the fact that if you're going to stick to this kind of thing which is kind of inherently sort of anti-mainstream you kind of at the same time have huge expectations about where it's going to go in the mainstream and where are you in the life of this show at the moment? Is this show finished and completed? Are you going to tour it for a bunch of years? I or thought what's it was finished, um, but it's just kind of become new again while I'm here because, you know, it's, it's changed a little bit. It's got a, more of a UK flavor to it. Yeah, and you really, you've really done your homework on and, the UK um, stuff. Well, I mean, this is the advantage of having, like, political friends is that, mm-hmm. you know, I got here and I just said, hey, what's happening? And they explained it to me. And some people even explained it in a funny way. You know, people know um, what I'm trying to say. Um, and uh, yeah so it's kind of got a little bit of new life I, I think I'll I might potentially be coming back for a return season um, but after that I think I need to kind of do the next one or yeah and what are the what are your plans for the next one let's talk about the writing let's talk about your writing style in yeah. regard to the next one how are you going to yeah. approach day one of like right got to get my shit together for a new show this is the problem I have Thank fuck you've got yeah. a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have no systematic writing process. Okay. So things come to me 
or they don't come to me. Um, and especially because I'm kind of riffing off stuff that real stuff that happens. Like I don't make up stories for my stand up. It's always something that's actually happened to me or happened somewhere. Um, I kind of need that to stimulate the writing. Uh, so sometimes one tiny thing might happen that might give me five minutes or seven minutes of stand up. And other times I might just go for weeks without anything happening or, you know, not remembering a story or anything like that. And there's no material. So, you know, really this show came together because I had so many things that had been edited out of years of Fear of Brown Planet just because it didn't match the pace or okay. there wasn't time to tell stories and stuff like that. The next one's going to be a lot harder, I think, because it's really going to be from scratch. And do you, when you're, or can you see yourself like kind of having writing times in the day? Are you going to be, are you going to, can you see yourself growing a, a system of going, right, okay, Monday mornings, I'm going to sit and try and make it happen for four hours and I hope so. that the engine will start running? Because I think the minute I do that, nothing will happen. So are you going to book yeah. some open spots and go, better have something by Wednesday the 15th? Doesn't work either. What are you going to do? Okay. Basically, I, I just, I, the easiest time for, it's not even writing, like, I'll be, when I'm doing something, um, you know, there's that, I don't know, I don't even know if it's real or if it's pseudoscience, but they say, like, when part of the brain is occupied, with something mechanical or routine, then it frees up your creativity. Have you heard this? Mm -hmm, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, really so Mike Gunn, a British comic out in the podcast, he's got a lovely system of sitting down to write for an hour or two, then he puts it all aside, goes and does some exercise, goes swims, goes yeah. for a bike ride, then comes back and punches up the stuff before because the mind is ticked over. Yeah, so usually like when I'm in the shower or just walking around aimlessly listening to music, that's when I find like I can really write, sort of come up with sort of minutes and minutes of of stuff so it, it really is just it's quite random okay uh, which makes it really hard to plan so with this you say that this was made out of bits that the current show was sort of based in bits that you didn't end up doing in in the previous yeah show. And, and new stuff sure, also, yeah. sure sure um yeah it's not just trends yeah. i realize that but um uh can you give us an example of something that you cut from this show or something that you had that you could have put in it and you maybe tried it, took it out, didn't like it. Did, did that happen? Uh, I'd just be interested in what yeah, sort yeah. of creative, what sort of structural decisions almost you're making on. Um, I think I cut, well, for this, I really just cut out. Like, I mean, there was a lot of Australian content that probably could have worked, but there's certain bits that need more explaining than others and certain bits that are worth explaining uh, like there's a, like a really niche bit on on that um, about that Australian politician banning the the face veil. Yes. Who happens to be a priest, and it kind of takes a lot of explaining. Yeah. But I feel like it's totally it's worth, worth it. it. Yeah, it's absolutely. totally worth yeah. it. And there was other bits about like Australian stuff that I could have explained, but this, the the punchline was just not big enough, or it wouldn't have been big enough in the UK compared to the way it was in Australia, where people would find it find it a lot funnier. So yeah, I think a lot of the even though there is a lot of like totally Australian material in there, uh, yeah, I think the the Australian stuff was the first to go. But aside from the kind of the, the crossover issues, are there bits? Can you think of a bit in in any of the stand up you've written where you've gone on stage with an idea and gone right? Here's the thing, and it hasn't worked. And yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, let's see. What kind of stuff? Um, 
I think my brain deletes that stuff very quickly. <laughs> I've never gone on stage and had material in my Um Sometimes there's really niche stuff, like superhero stuff that like that I love, but you just have to come to terms with the fact that one lonely guy in the audience knows what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so actually, yeah. So, Been there. So, so there's a whole actually there is a whole bunch of niche Star Wars and Star Trek material. Okay. That I have, which now I'm just like chasing my friends in Melbourne. Like, can we do a like a Revenge of the Nerds stand up night? Yeah, okay. Just so I can do this stuff. And this is, this is stuff that's about race, seen through the prism of Star Wars. Yeah, uh, yes. Sometimes pure Star Wars, but also that Game of Thrones type stuff. About, sure. Did you notice how all this stuff we love is kind of racist? Like, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, the irony being when I do it to the crowd of nerds who understand it, yeah. they'll probably be quite resistant to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Race, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, there, there is a big chunk of that kind of stuff. Yes, okay. Yeah, I read in uh, one of your interviews that your theories about um, the way to end racism is like Magneto to get all of the brown people to go away to their just, own. It just it's a self-imposed <laughs> exile on, a, on an asteroid. <laughs> Do you consider yourself an artist or an entertainer? It depends who I'm speaking to. <laughs> That's a great answer! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Give me some more on that. Because to some people, calling yourself an artist just sounds so pretentious. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so yeah, really, I mean, to me, they're the same thing, but you know, I, I, I'm careful about who I call myself an artist around. But to you, they're the same thing. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'm an artist who entertains. Um, and some people are more artistic and some people are more entertaining. Given that you're, um, that there's a lot of anger it, it, motivating your comedy, do you? How do you turn? What's your what's your kind of? Um, I know I know you sort of said you don't you don't sort of think in strategic terms, but what do you do to turn anger into funny stuff? I think. I think the biggest thing I took from uh, like Pryor and Bill Hicks is the fact that you don't necessarily have to turn it. Like there is something funny about a guy getting angry. There is something funny sometimes about just watching a guy screaming about some stuff uh, that you can watch from a distance and just just laugh about. Um, even whether you even agree with the anger or not, like sometimes it's just hilarious to watch. To watch someone rant, um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think that's that's sort of kind of part of what I do is that I don't even have to translate it. Um, I can just be angry, and while I'm being angry, just say, "Look, this is ridiculous," or "That guy's an idiot," and that that itself is just funny. You don't look convinced. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. It's not that I'm not convinced. I'm just. Uh... I, uh, the, the, the struggle that I have in my own material is I have a lot of problems with anxiety and I try to write material about that but in writing material about it I put myself in that state of mind and it prolongs it and I get anxious yeah. about the yeah, material yeah, yeah. anxious you know? about the anxiety material exactly, yeah. exactly and I just wondered if there was if there was something similar that in the in the research that you're doing in the reading in a conversation you have when something pisses you off yeah. you go I'm going to get this yeah. on stage well I mean it kind of goes back to um Back to what I was saying before when people say, you know, that I don't, I don't address a certain topic or something like that. Yeah, sometimes something makes me really angry. There's no way to joke about it. 
You know, like it's just too sensitive or it's just happened and it's just, there's just no funny angle to it. Um, but it makes me really upset. Um, so yeah, on, on the flip side, not all anger translates into humor. Okay. Or I can't necessarily... So it's almost about picking your battles, kind of choosing yeah. the stuff. Yeah, I can't necessarily translate all of my anger into humor. Given that you're the guy that's kind of saying we should kill all white people, <laughs> given you're the guy that's got material about Breivik, do you know what I mean? A good, good material, you know, about that. Yeah. I mean, holy shit. And I'm not, I'm not going to spoil oh, the beans entirely because I, I want people to come back yeah, and see you I next time I, you're I here. didn't know how that Breivik stuff was going to go, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's... Did you feel going on stage and I, I just I don't want us to give away the material but you're not making light of that situation you're just not saying it from a completely different perspective yeah. did you the first time you did that were you thinking wow this is a risk yeah 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 and, and this is the weird thing because people will laugh harder at that than some softer bits you know sure. like some people yeah. get it it's hard to predict sometimes what people get uncomfortable about and even in the UK and Australia the same bit uh, people sometimes just laugh harder at one part consistently yes. in the UK compared to where they were, and there's just kind of no way, no way to explain it. Um, but yeah, that that terror stuff, that was probably like the most um, unsure I've been about material. Okay, because because it is really it's very early stuff. in the show as well yeah, yeah, before right. we've made up our minds about you I was, I was in two minds I, I, you know I know you're an intelligent guy I, you know I'd seen bits and bobs of yours and five minutes in you're Anders Breivik yeah. and I'm, part of me is going it's better be too early yeah, yeah. well, well it's just this, yeah. this better you, you know I feel like I'm we the audience are putting our faith in you and going <laughs> yeah. come yeah. on then yeah. don't let us down yeah, yeah. And, then, and then there's the material on Woolwich which also yes. people are just like Really, are you, you know, because but part of part of the and I don't use the term thrill. It's not sensationalist, but part of the excitement of us as an audience in going. I haven't. I've not heard anything on Woolwich. I've not heard anyone go anywhere near that awful situation, let alone as part of a, you know, a larger argument. Well, and I think people uh, have a lot of experience with going to comedy shows where comedians deliberately provoke the crowd. Or deli- oh, here's my, here's my joke about pedophilia, or here's, here's, I'm gonna say something really off color about children or women or whatever, and the comedian sits there and takes pleasure in people's discomfort. Mm. Uh, whereas with me, it's just like, just, just go with me because I promise I'm not, I'm not talking about Woolwich because, because I get a thrill out of seeing you squirm before I get to the punchline. Like, I genuinely saw something funny in that video that is just kind of not even related to what happened. It's just a g- genuinely funny situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that people have kind of responded that way. And I mean, because I think because I've because I'm not trying to make light of it. You know, I am just kind of speaking from my experience and how how Muslims feel when we see terrorism reported um, and how people react to certain media coverage. And I think because it's honest, I think people are happy to roll with it. There must be, there must be, surely, some element of thrill for you in the fact that you're saying the unsayable. There's a thrill for me that people get that joke at the end. Because because the the tie wire is so high. Yeah, and because to me it's not the unsayable thing. because, Because I've always got Muslims in the crowd. Because I've always got... I feel like the crowd are, are, are my friends, basically, because of the way 
I've built my audience because the way I interact with my audience online, you know, some people might think it's, you know, kind of silly that you know a lot of people in the audience, but for me, that just makes me a lot more comfortable. And that's kind of my comedy. You, you know a lot of them from, from your Social online media, interactions. Social media, yeah. And, um, and I'm fine with that because I started out writing comedy for my friends and I still write it for my friends. I'm writing it for people who I want to hang out with after the show. I'm writing it for people who are on the same page. So for me as a performer, that's always kind of like this safety net. I'm never, you know, it's not like I walk into a random pub and bust out the, the Woolwich material, you sure, know what I mean? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's catered for, for a, a certain that's, crowd. That's really interesting. I did a, a preview show of my, the show I'm taking up to the Edinburgh yeah. Festival last night. Um, and I had, I'd sold on a night where there was a nice warm sunny night with football on, I think I'll sell something like 35 tickets and I was over the moon, I was yeah. like, oh my god, for a preview, that's awesome. Yeah. And when I realised that, of, you know, a good chunk, maybe 10 people in the audience were people I knew, I sort of privately saw that, I'm very grateful those people for coming, yeah. of course, but I privately saw that almost as a failure because friends are coming and they're not the same as punters yeah. who've heard yeah. of me. But... I suppose, and I, I realise it's different to what you're describing. It's yeah. not like these are school friends of yours, yeah, but yeah. they're people who you have, whose, whose, uh, whose engagement you've you've courted online. Yeah, and that's actually it's a very refreshing kind of idea to go. No, that's it. You make you know you see them as your friends. Well, because there's comedians who would take great pleasure into going into a club or whatever and doing the Woolwich material. Yeah, and and winning a crowd and bending strangers to their yeah, will. and I'm yeah, just okay. I'm just not on that at all. Like it's just not a thing for me. Like, like I find that exhausting. I, I just I, I don't get anything out of walking into a room of people who don't agree with me and then changing their minds. Like it's just not something that I'm I'm about. I just I just want to make people laugh who get what I'm saying. Um, and if I do if I do a, like a, a club spot or whatever. I'll just do the stuff that I think pe people are going to laugh at. Um, you know, I just, yeah, I just, I'm not, um, and I, I don't think I could actually with my material turn people around because I think it takes a lot of time and knowing me to be prepared for my style and the things I'm going to say, which is what my audience has. They have a familiarity with my stuff. Well, I don't know that I'd agree with that. I think um, certainly in the example of the YouTube clip, the reverse yeah. racism clip, you... But that's a soft clip. It, uh, what do you mean? Explain to me what you mean by a soft clip. It's not, um, compared to some other material, it's not, I mean, even if you don't agree with it, I know the topic is not as sensitive as, you know, terrorism sure. and, you know, people dying and sure. stuff like that. But, but I think in terms of how you perform and the way in which you take us into your confidence, that's not quite the right phrase, I mean, the way, the confidence that you instill in us with the, the pace, the slow pace of your delivery where you are meeting out this idea and that means this and that, me that must mean this. People, you're leading us by the hand through the ideas in much the same way as you do in the more challenging sort of material. And I think that, uh, I just don't know, I think, just think it's interesting how people respond to that. I think you, I forget the point I'm arguing now, <laughs> what are we uh... saying? <laughs> I was disagreeing with you. Yeah, yeah, but I meant it in a nice way. What were we saying? Um, I think I was saying that uh, I can't remember. It was something about like my 
You know what? I really can't remember. <laughs> it's going to be annoyed now. I'm going to listen back to this bit. It's going to be very frustrated that it doesn't go where I, where I want it to. It'll come back to me. Um, you're, I think I meant your, your status on stage. You are our friend on stage. You're not like a provocative influence. You yeah. know what I mean? You're, yeah, yeah. you're saying things, but you're saying provocative things within... A framework. Within a framework, you know, with, and a framework that seems rigorously thought out. You know, you're a million miles away from, from someone in a club casually tossing off a provocative kind of reference. Yeah. Um, let's, just before we wrap up, I just want to talk to you about the changes in how you, or whether there is a change, I would assume there is, in, in since the massive explosive success of that clip, um, have you then had to develop a social media strategy? Not not just in terms of the engagement with the individuals, but do you, are you kind of, or do you have someone, I know you said that, you know, the people assume the clip now means you're a millionaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely understand that's not the case. But maybe you have someone, do you have someone to help you with social media? No, do no you, it's, it's just Do me. you ever look at kind of social marketing seminars? Did any, put you're an intelligent guy, did you go, oh, how can I turn these million hits into a million hits on my next web video? No. None of them. The only the only social media strategy I have is something someone told me about when to post something on social media. Go on, which that? is kind of just before work or just after work. That's it. That's it. Because before you know, I used to put, I used to put up videos at like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon when no one is on social sure, media, okay. and one of my friends was just like, "What are you doing? Just you know, but just at least put it online when people are actually online." Okay. That's that's my social media strategy. And you're on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, and yeah. do you know how many followers you have? I think it was about nine and a half thousand or something like that. Given that that... Is your Twitter handle on your on that video? Do you still have ownership of the video or has it been duplicated and it's... It's, been, it's been translated. It's been translated into oh, like shit. Arabic, Portuguese. Uh, I think there's a translation coming in Turkish. I'm not sure. Um... Do you still French, have the original? Is French. it on your account? That yeah, 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 it's on my account. It's on my account, but it's also been ripped. I don't know why it's been ripped yeah. in English. Yeah, in the it's original. annoying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, I don't mind, but yeah, that's weird. Um, I don't know if because I've uploaded it to YouTube, I've given it to them. I have no idea. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, I don't. Uh, I just interact with people directly, and um, you know, it's not a massive, massive following, but. Again, you know, I just, I don't, I, I don't feel like I have fans. I feel like I just have people who are supporting what I do. Um, and I try to support, you know, you know, causes or organizations or people who support me. Thanks, man. I think that'll do us. I, sort of, I feel a bit bad finishing, uh, there's a really interesting conversation. I feel a bit bad finishing on the idea of networking on no, social no, no. media. It feels like a less of a, a sort of a valid thing. No, but it's, 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 about. it's totally, like, it's, it's... A reality. I mean, the, the, the understanding that I finally, finally came to this year is that my art, my comedy is a business, right? Like I have resisted this idea my entire career because that's not how I saw my comedy. That's not what I saw as its purpose. That's not how I wanted to think about it. But finally, I've just realized that I exist in a commercial context and whether I like it or not, I'm running a business, a, a bad business that loses a lot of money regularly, but a business like, you know, just because, just because I want to put blinkers on and not see it that way, 
it doesn't change the fact that that's that's the universe I exist in and um, so yeah you know I have to um, I have to make certain decisions now based on on you know well I mean that's that's why I was going to quit because I just thought financially this is it's not really going anywhere and you know it's not it's not like after that clip went viral that you know my income has shot up at all um, the, the, the main thing that's shot up is recognition but still you know my audience is not rich hmm. you know I get requests from all around the world hey can you come here hey can you come here and I was like I don't have a private jet yet like someone's gonna have to fly me out you know at the very least hmm. so so yeah I mean it's it's you know I feel silly now that it's taken me this long to approach it with a business mindset uh, and, and if that if that revelation has come so recently, presumably part of the challenge of writing the new show is to have one eye on the business with end of it without that affecting the the anger and the the topics yeah. the stuff that you're covering. Yeah, I mean it's not going to affect it in the sense that I'm I'm ever going to write something to appeal to a wider demographic, right? I mean, there's kind of like a built-in failsafe in my comedy, which is that people support me, but they're also very rigorous in how they support me. So if I walk, you know, if I step out of the, out of the pen, people will let me know. You know, my audience won't tolerate me selling out, basically. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's ever going to affect the writing in that sense. That's an incredible idea, a built-in failsafe. Yeah, yeah okay, absolutely. Okay. I Not something I designed, by the way. Not no. something that I actually... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you didn't it, build it in. No, it's yeah. just something that's developed, you know. Yes. That my, my material attracted a certain sort of crowd. And, you know, like, it's amazing how much support I get. But they support me because I'm doing that. And, you know, if I tried to turn around and do something, you know, more mainstream... Yeah, I mean, it's not like they'd crucify me, but people, I'm sure, they just wouldn't be interested in the same way. Thank you very much. Cheers for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Arma. That was amazing. So that was Arma. I, I really recommend you look up his stuff. As he says there, he's very into his relationship with his fans, so give him a shout if you've got something to, to talk to him about, and do try and get to see him live sometime soon. That's all from me. Tweet me at ComComPod, email info at comedianscomedian.com if you have any requests for guests, feedback from previous episodes, or questions you'd like me to ask. Uh, thank you to Olivia Phipps for her help with the uh, Podmin this time. Uh, this episode was produced by me and me alone, which is why the sound is doubtless shonky. I've just booked Josie Long for the Edinburgh podcast. Dates are all unconfirmed as yet, but if you'd like to see Josie, Sam Simmons, Phil Kay, Bridget Christie, or one secret special guest, which, as we remember from last year, means I have not booked them yet, go to heroesoffringe.com, pick a random day, and cross your fingers. I'm not releasing which act is on which date just yet, partially because I don't know and partially because it's a nice little treat to give the mailing list. So sign up for that if you'd like. Thank you for listening. I'll speak to you soon with a proper voice. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.